Good evening, everyone. Uh, I think most of you probably received an outline when you came in tonight. That would be a helpful thing to have with you. Uh, that will at least allow you to know how far you've got to go before you get asleep later on. And also, it would be really helpful for you to have your Bibles open because I'm going to cover a lot of ground and uh, some of it might be a bit new to us. Uh, it certainly was new to me this week. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump in and have a think about Luke chapter 6. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you'd be at work in us, changing us and shaping us, helping us to see your truth and to live in the light of it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know all about Jesus. Now that's the sort of statement that gets said by people who often don't know much about Jesus or in fact anything about Jesus. Usually it's said with some kind of enthusiasm as the speaker seeks to find a positive common ground with the Christian hearer. I know all about Jesus. Now perhaps I said it when I was a much younger fellow, but I wouldn't say it now. It seems the older that I get, the less I'm prepared to make such a bold claim as to know all about Jesus. And as we look at Luke chapter 6 today, we are going to learn more about him. And my guess is, as we learn more about him, we'll find ourselves being challenged in the way that we think and in the way that we live. Now, are you up for that? None of you are up for that. That's terrible. Are you up for that? Are you wanting to be challenged tonight? Okay, well, we'll do it. Our passage begins after a very important moment in Luke's Gospel. We read in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, this sets the scene. Now, during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Now, it's no mistake that Luke points out that Jesus did three things here. He prayed. All night, in fact. Jesus' commitment to prayer is a commitment that Luke wants Theophilus to see. Then the second thing that he did is he called his disciples to him. And again, as you're following through what we've been looking at in Luke over the last few weeks, it highlights Jesus' authority. He calls and we rightly expect his disciples to hear his call and respond to what Jesus says. There's no surprise about that, is there? That's what we expect. Is that right? When Jesus speaks, his disciples hear him and they they act in line. That's what we expect, isn't it? Is that right? Bear that in mind in a little while. There is no discussion here about convenience or wider public opinion as Jesus calls. He calls and they respond. And then thirdly, he chose out of the wider group of disciples 12 12, which he called apostles. And again, you'll notice that there's no popularity contest or consultation with focus groups about how the wider uh, society might respond to these men. Jesus is the one who leads. Jesus is the one who speaks. And Jesus is the one who directs. The demeanour, if you think about it, is kingly and purposeful rather than hopeful and democratic. It's there even in the name that Jesus gives to these 12 special ones. They are to be called apostles. Now the word apostle carries with it the idea of being sent out. And in fact an apostle would normally be sent out by a king. 
to carry out important news. So these 12 were to have a special job amongst all the other disciples. They were going to be the ones that Jesus would send out. It was a decision made prayerfully, as we've seen, carefully, and in fact it was done with stupendous success, if you think about it. Because here we are in St Peter's Cathedral 2,000 years later and we are the evidence of Jesus' success in sending those 12 men. Can you imagine that? Being involved in a mission that picked up 12 people and 2,000 years later on the other side of the world it was still running? It is the testimony of the apostles about Jesus that we rely on today as we read the New Testament scriptures written by their hands or recording their conversations. To dismiss or ignore or downplay the importance of what they have written and said as they carry out their carefully and prayerfully given mandate actually carries with it some significance as well. It's to work against the master who chose and sent them, if you think about it. Well, after gathering the disciples, again with his authority clearly in view, we read this in verses 18 and 19. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. We can see again Jesus' authority as this mass of people gather around him, and he shows them his power and authority. And after gathering and tasking the twelve, Jesus moves to teaching his disciples about being his people. People who know Christ, who acknowledge his kingship and live their lives in the light of the future that he has in store for them. And this is a very different way of thinking and acting. The way that Jesus lays out. So I want us to have a look then at this new truth and this new way of living. It follows through from verses 17 to 26. We're going to focus on just a couple of verses of it though. Here, Jesus is contrasting his people who live in the light of the truth and in light of the then, he contrasts them with other people who live their lives in the light of how they live now. His people are to be taking the long-term, big-picture view, even as others can only think about what's going on for them in the immediate sense. So have a look with me at verses 20 to 23. You'll see it very clearly there. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that's how their fathers treated the prophets. Now one of the very great errors in modern Christianity is that we have allowed selfishness to sneak into our doctrine and we've missed teachings like this. If you look at it, Jesus is not promising a better life now for his disciples, is he? There's no guarantee here about wealth or happiness or health now, is there? In fact, the expectation is of struggle in this life. Isn't that right? As you read what you you see before you there. Isn't that right? Poverty, hunger, sadness, 
and persecution. These are the realities that Jesus speaks to his disciples about. Now that's not much of a sales pitch, is it? Who's going to sign up for that? Maybe, maybe we should lend Jesus one of our modern current political speechwriters so as they could ease the discomfort that people might feel. You know, we are going to tax you a little bit harder, but, but it'll be okay. You won't feel it really because we'll give you back some money. Something like that. Something to increase his marketability. Maybe that's what we should do for Jesus. Well, no. Jesus is actually into truth rather than popularity. And I want you to notice especially that his discussion is not limited to the here and now. In fact, it centres on another place. He doesn't centre on the immediate as so many of the pictures that we hear and are going to hear over the next couple of weeks do. He takes the long-term view. And did you see it there? Jesus is good and he will deliver good things but we're not to expect it now in line with our petty longings. Have a look at the middle of verse 23. You'll see it there. Rejoice in that day. What day? The day of persecution. And leap for joy in that day because great is your reward in heaven. You see, it's what is ahead that gives us hope now. It's the long-term future that Jesus delivers to his people and that is our source of joy. The immediate road, though, is one of trust and we're going to come back to that in a little while. And the contrast is set up in verses 24 to 26. We've had the positive, now the negative. But woe to you who are rich, For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Again, we neglect what Jesus is saying here to our very great harm. Jesus is focused on people who are living with their eyes focused on the now. And for these people, the now, sadly, is as good as it gets. The pursuit of wealth, well, that's bought you all that it can. The pursuit of fine foods and luxuries, well, that's delivered its best. The pursuit of happiness has carried you to all that it can carry. And the pursuit of popularity has given you all that it can give. What's ahead for these people in the long term is actually loss rather than gain. Now, as wealthy Christians in a big church for rural Australia, surrounded by the temptations of bright earthly futures, we really need to stop and hear what Jesus says here. And we need to very, very carefully to think through the implications of the reality that Jesus presents. It's not an uncommon thing. He does this kind of presentation, a reversal, all the time, doesn't he? Let me read a couple of others. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this one, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Now I don't think you're going to find that kind of information in the financial review, do you? And you're not going to find it in the financial review because the view of those who are writing the financial review, their view is too shallow. Their vision is too short. That's why you won't read it there. They'll say it's all about now. Jesus' concern is that a knowledge of what is ahead should actually change what we do now. The hellish and heavenly reality of the future is reality. So live like it. Don't live as if this life is all that we have and as if all that we see is all that there is. Now, a second aspect of this new truth and new way of living is found in verses 27 through to 36. And as I said, I was going to come back to it, it's all about love and trust. Jesus radically calls his disciples to love radically, even violent enemies, if you read it there. And again, a contrast is set up. Verses 27 to 31, love the enemy, love the violent, love the thief, and it's repeated again in verse 35. It's utter craziness, isn't it? Isn't that stupid? Well, it is if you're a materialist or a Darwinian evolutionist. This is not about the survival of the fittest that Jesus is speaking. It's about suffering for the sake of others. It's not the natural way to go. It's radical. It's different. The natural way is actually there in verses 32 and 34. Only do things that benefit you. That's the survival of the fittest model right there. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. The disciple of Jesus is to follow a very different model to this. Verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And verses 35 and through to 36. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, And you'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Love is about having someone else as foremost in mind and practice, isn't it? And it will only make sense, actually, if there is a God and a future beyond the grave. I'd love you to go away and think about that sentence for a little while. See whether you think it can be possibly true. I think it is. You see, I'll only be able to love the enemy, the violent, the thief or the sinner, if I know that there is life after death and there is the reality of the mercy of God. Then it starts to make sense. 
The question will always be, do I trust God enough to look after me even if the people of the world take advantage of me? Do I trust God enough to care for me even if the people and situations of the world cause me to suffer? And as I ask the question as a Christian, how can I ask it without my God and my Jesus and him crucified at the forefront of my mind? I have to think of it that way. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, and I see that in the cross. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, and I see that in the cross. The model counts, doesn't it? The knowledge of the truth. It changes the frame in which we live and act. And you'll see it again in verses 37 and 38. Here, Jesus is teaching us to be what we need. Now, I sure as heck don't want judgment or condemnation. I might deserve it, but I don't want it. So be what you need. I don't want cold judgmentalism, so don't give it. I don't want condemnation, so don't give it. I need love, I need mercy, I need forgiveness, so give those things. In Christ we have them, don't we? Isn't that true? Overflowing with generosity way beyond expectation, let alone what we deserve. Verses 37 and 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Given it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now this is not speaking about some kind of karma. And neither is it a get out of jail free card when we make terrible and sinful decisions. I can't turn around and say, don't you judge me. You can't judge me. From this verse, it doesn't come from there. What this is about is amazing grace and favour. Oh, to be known as a disciple of Christ right here. Loving the sinful and yet pointing them towards something better and lasting, even as I have been loved and pointed towards something better and lasting. As Jesus teaches his disciples... His call is authoritative and uncompromising. It's such a different voice to the so many that we hear and see these days, and they're here too. So in verses 39 to 45, there are those who are living blind and producing thorns. They're often the popular voices. They're often the loud and impressive ones. But it doesn't count for much if they don't know the, the, the truth of reality and her king, does it? In in verse 39, Jesus says, A blind man can't really help another blind man. And that's true. They'll both fall into the pit. And those who hear truth from the teacher king will be like him. That's in verse 40. Getting rid of the blindness will help you to help those blind others around and about you. Verses 41 through to 42. And I've got to tell you, I've misunderstood this verse for years. So look at it closely. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye 
And then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. These verses are often used with regard to just general hypocrisy, aren't they? But here in context, I think they are actually more about knowing the reality of the world, the king and the future. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about himself and the way that they see him. It's more about the disciples knowing true sight and leading others to that true sight. Know these things rightly, know Jesus rightly, and live your lives in the light of what you rightly know, rather than living in a hypocritical way. The hypocrisy that says, I know Jesus, but then lives its own way. The hypocrisy that says, we know the truth, and then we live like there's another truth. If the passage is about blatant hypocrisy, then I guess I can distance myself from it in some small way. But if it's about living a life with Jesus as my Lord and with heaven as my future, then my slackness with Bible reading and with prayer actually become significant problems. If it's about Jesus as my Lord and about a heavenly truth, then my lack of active evangelism becomes greatly problematic. My slowness to encourage my Christian friends, my unwillingness in church to serve or to give or to attend, my reliance on my money, my reliance on relationships, all of those things start to become very problematic. A dangerous plank-like hypocrisy that I really need to be removed so that I can be of help to the people around me. Otherwise, these next few verses might become true of me. I might become a tree that bears no good fruit, verse 43. A thorn bush or a briar rather than a fig tree or a grapevine that others treasure to have in their garden. We all need to sit up and listen to the next few words from Jesus because they'll sum up all that he has been driving at. Verse 46 And they're the scariest words in the Bible that I've read this week. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Does that verse not chill us? Or is that only me? As Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, Why do you, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I say. When the Lord of the universe reveals himself to us, should we not be changed? When the creator of the universe speaks, should we not listen to him? When the truth of our future, its promises on the one hand and its warnings on the other are revealed, should we not respond? Look again at what Jesus says and prayerfully ask that we all would hear exactly what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I'll show you what he is like that comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundations on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. 
The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now this sermon on the plain, I've often thought, was very similar to Jesus' sermon on the mount in Matthew. But actually they are significantly different, significantly, if you read them very closely. This sermon on the plain in Luke is about knowing the truth, seeing the truth, responding to the truth. Jesus speaks to his disciples, to those who desire to be and claim to be his people, and he says, well then listen to my word and live under my kingship. You see, knowing the truth of Christ and his word is not an academic thing. It will or it should mean a walking in the light of the knowing that we have been granted. So I've got to ask you the question, as I've had to ask myself the question this week, if this is who Jesus is, have I responded to him appropriately? In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus revealed in all his glory. Hair as white as snow. A face burning like the sun. A voice like rushing waters. What was his response? He fell to his face as if he was dead. I think John had the right of it. When we tend to wander on, thinking I can have this and I can do that. And Jesus, well he's somewhere in the middle, but really, is he, is he the one with all the authority? Well, he is. And we need to live in the light of that truth. So let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this passage and we pray that as we continue to look at it and think it through, we might see it truly. Not just to see the passage truly, but to see Jesus truly. And we pray that as we see him truly, we might live lives that match up with that truth. That we might not be hypocrites with logs in our eyes, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.